What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Crypto Entrepreneurs Podcast. As always, it's your host, Charles. Today, we have a very interesting episode for you. A lot of my older guests or guests that are older or have been in the space for a while talk about Silk Road and purchasing drugs on there, and that was kind of their introduction to Bitcoin. Uh, And this episode is going to be kind of the flip side of that coin. I'm speaking with somebody who's going to remain anonymous who is actually selling on the Silk Road. Uh, And so we're going to talk about kind of his experience selling on there, uh, what happened to him. We're going to talk about Ross and his situation and kind of talk about how we can move forward and kind of progress as a society when it relates to drugs and drug use and drug charges. But before we get into all of that, do just want to make a couple quick announcements. Picked up a third sponsor. It's Metal Pay. You guys have probably seen me posting about them already. I'm not going to do too many announcements, just that they are coming on as a sponsor. Uh, and then the other two sponsors that I do talk about pretty consistently, Crypto.com and CoinFlip. They've got a couple of announcements. So I'm going to get to those before we get into the episode. Uh, for Crypto.com, this is the last month where you can get the 3% fee wave for credit card purchases and then also the 10% cash back on purchases with the MCO Visa credit card on your grocery purchases as well as food delivery services. So if you haven't signed up yet, you still do have a little bit of time to sign up, start getting those cash back rewards. Uh, another huge announcement for these guys is they're doing another token sale. It's for their fourth anniversary. They're doing another 50% sale on Bitcoin, and there is a $2 million allocation for this one. So anyone who applies splits up the $2 million in Bitcoin, and you get it for half off. Again, don't think we are going to see prices that low anytime soon. So if you'd like to head over, there's a link in the description below. Again, you can get 50% off, and that is on the 30th of this month. Shortly after that, the syndicate's also doing a sale for ADA, uh, so that'll be coming up soon. Uh, again, you can head over to the link, check it all out. They've got a bunch of cool stuff going on. And then that second sponsor, CoinFlip, more or less the same stuff. Their OTC desk has launched. It has a very low minimum. It's a $5,000 purchase. Most other OTC desks are much higher than that. They've also got great customer support and some of the lowest fees for an OTC desk in the market. So if you're interested in picking some up uh, and you're trying to buy some Bitcoin over the counter, you can head over to CoinFlip. But not only that, these guys are one of the biggest crypto ATM companies in the industry. They are the third largest by number of machines and actually first largest by volume So if you're out and about, you're with your friends, you want to show them how to purchase Bitcoin and you want to do it through an ATM, these guys are the go-to. We're going to have a link to their website in the description below. You can head on over. You can see where all of their machines are, where the closest one to you is. You can head out and you can buy it. Lastly, if you use the code Charles, you will get 20% off fees. It's just a na- another little incentive or bonus to go out and hit one of these machines while these guys are sponsoring me. And again, for all three of these companies, cannot express how grateful I am. I tweet about it pretty often, but I don't talk about it too much on here. 
Uh, you know, when I started this podcast, it was just a for fun thing to talk to entrepreneurs. And it's really grown into something much larger than that. Uh, so again, eternally grateful for these guys. If you like what I'm posting, you like these episodes, I highly suggest checking out all three of them. They've got my seal of approval. But it's enough on my sponsors. Let's get into this episode. Let's start talking about the Silk Road. Uh, so we're sitting down with someone who is going to remain unnamed uh, just for anonymity purposes, for privacy purposes, for security purposes, because we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff today. Uh, but can you give us a brief background on yourself, what you were doing before you got into crypto, uh, as much as you want to talk about, just so you don't give away too many personal details? Um, <clears throat> I was basically just a high school drug dealer. Uh, I started off selling pot. Uh, somebody, I used to smoke pot like most people. Um, I had a buddy who had a new, uh, new plug and hooked me up. And so I started selling a little bit. And uh, as you start selling more, you find out, well, there's other drugs. And so I had a couple of buddies introduce me to Molly, MDMA, uh, did a little bit for personal use and found, well, I can make some money off of this too. So uh, through that, I wound up buying some uh, some pink Molly one time, and I'm trying to do research all over the internet. Wow, it's pink. Why is it pink? Like, oh, there's happens to be different colors sometimes. Oftentimes it's gray or it's white or sometimes it's brown. And so why is it pink? And there were like people who said, oh, well, I recrystallized it or other chemical processes. And so a different buddy of mine um who i knew because i was uh i was a band geek i used to go to local shows i used to go and hang out with like kind of the scene kids you know i would dance and hardcore music and so there was a hardcore band that i knew and one of the uh one of the front men the singer for the group he uh he knew this guy and so he said all right i'll i'll introduce you like he's 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 a what he say? He said he's a chemist, basically. <laughs> and so this 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 friend of mine, he used to uh, he used to sell some of this acid. So one time, actually, uh, he called me up and he was like, "I need some pot." And I was like, "All right, like, like uh, I got this much. What do you got?" And he's like, "Oh, how about I trade some acid that I have for some of the pot you have?" And I'm like, "That sounds cool." So fair he trade. traded me some acid. Fair trade, fair trade. And so I tried some that night, and I got Baker acted. And, that was that was a lot of fun, and uh, so I come up come up with this Molly, and I come up with this Molly, and so he takes me to the plug's house, and the plug has a test kit, and for those who are unfamiliar, uh, they're called reagent kits, R E A G E N T, and basically you have like little droppers or like eyedroppers that can contain a chemical, and when you put them on different substances, they will turn a different color, and the color helps you determine what kind of drug it is. So I come in and he's got this test kit and it immediately turns yellow. Now, anybody who's familiar with MDMA or Molly or whatever term you choose to use, yellow is not the color you want. You want it to be black to purple. Uh, yellow basically means it's bunk. It's some sort of other molecule that somebody was able to get from China for cheap. Um, this stuff is called BKMDMA or methylone usually. Uh, there's lots of different iterations of it these days, but that was what was popular back then. So uh, ends up becoming friendly with this guy and he's trying to move product. And so he's helping me and I'm helping him and he gives me some acid to sell and I sell a little bit of the acid and he's uh, he starts telling me a little bit more and a little bit more. And 
he's telling me one day, he's like, yeah, there's a, there's this website I use and I'm ordering stuff off of there and you need like an IP scrambler. And it's really funny. He's telling me looking back because the way he makes it sound in the first place, which I'm, I'm sure most people, if you, if you have some sort of a business that you do and you don't necessarily want other people doing it, you're going to make it sound complicated. That way people don't try to like step on your toes with it. So you're like, Oh, I have an IP scrambler. And like, it sounds like you're a hacker and like, it takes all this extra effort in order to try and get whatever situations and get whatever data and, and products that you need. And so I think he's a real smart guy. And so I'm working with him and uh, he's been ordering off of what I come to find out is the Silk Road later. Um, so he introduced me to Bitcoin. This is the first time I ever knew about Bitcoin. It's an anonymous uh, electronic cryptocurrency, which is kind of a double entendre because it's obviously anonymous. It's obviously uh, electronic if it's a cryptocurrency. But point being, I was I was hooked. Uh, Bitcoin was ninety or a hundred dollars back then. So what what and year so, was this? Uh, just for my audience. Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was late 2013, probably October, probably like, like beginning of October because Bitcoin was just around a hundred, hundred and ten dollars And back then I didn't know anything. I just took whatever information he fed me and I latched onto it. So I thought like, I thought Bitcoin was pretty stable right there. And I thought Bitcoin was anonymous, which most of us know that it's not. Um, so He's, uh, he's on Silk Road, he's buying, and he's trying to work up to being a seller. Um, so I'm selling products for him. And back then on the Silk Road, you used to have to pay a deposit, basically, uh, in order to think of it like a house deposit. You put money in that way that the, uh, the owner of the house knows that you're not going to damage it. So you put money in, that way the Silk Road can kind of verify that you're a valid reseller. That you're not just going to go in and start scamming people and sending them nothing or sending them bunk product because you have money at stake in the first place. Um, so I end up working with him for a while. I help him sell some products and I get him an account. And so uh, I get him an account and I end up going off to university while he's selling. He's ordering stuff. He's shipping stuff to me. I'm getting packages to university in the mail sometimes. I come home from university. We have packages. And it was real fun. I mean, there was one time I picked up a pack. It was uh, a quarter key of methylone, this BK MDMA, this like fake molly. And uh, we could get this stuff, real molly. It's funny, people, people throw around prices all the time. Usually the price that I know, it's like $70 for a gram. Um, we used to get this stuff for $3,000 for two kilos. We were paying like a dollar per gram, maybe 50 cents per gram for this crap. Uh, so we had shipped it to my cousin and we had to drive three hours or I'm sorry, we shipped it to my university PO box. And so I had to have my cousin go pick it up because I didn't go, I wasn't at university at the time and she lived in the same city. So we drove three hours from our hometown to my university city and went and picked the stuff up for my cousin. And we drove back and it was in a, uh, it was in a cake mix box. So to anybody else, it's just Chinese cake mix. And it was really, it was just really like a fun time. I don't know. Selling drugs was always really fun to me. For a lot of people, I, I get that same feeling that they enjoy it. It's fun. It's exhilarating. Uh, there's also a pretty dark side to it. But um, can you just, 
you know, can we slow down a little bit? I don't know that my, all of my audience knows what the Silk Road is. Uh, as we're talking, I have the Wikipedia page up here. I'm sure people have read through it if they didn't know what it is, but can you just give us, you know, the high-level overview of what the Silk Road was? Um, and uh, can you kind of go into go into it a little bit more about, like, the process of you selling on there? Uh, because I feel like a lot of people, their first experience with Bitcoin was using it to buy drugs. Uh, you were on the <laughs> other end of that. You were selling these people the drugs. Uh, so can you, one, talk to us about what, what Silk Road actually was, and then two, can we go into your experience a little bit more about selling drugs on there? So I'll preface first that the Silk Road was not the only drug website, um, and it was not only a drug website, although it was mainly a drug website. Um, one thing people get wrong, too, because of misinformation and mainly by, I would say, law enforcement is that, uh, oh, people sell guns and it's like this really terrible place, just like the entire dark web, which is kind of one of the reasons that they frame it as like the dark web, like, oh, it's this dark and scary place and you should never go there. <laughs> but really, it's just kind of like it's a hidden part it's of the internet. It, yeah. I mean, it was a free market, basically, and people were allowed to buy and sell things. Now, what people don't know or commonly don't know, I'm sure many of you might, is that you actually were not allowed to sell weapons on there. You were not allowed to sell weapons and you were not allowed to sell things like child pornography, which would hurt, which would hurt people. Like, so there were counterfeit goods on there. There was fake money on there. There was drugs on there. You could buy banned books on there. So if anybody's familiar with the, uh, the anarchist cookbook, you could buy that book on there. There were lots of other books you could buy somebody uh, you could pay them to write your college paper for you and it would be really cheap like lots of little random services like this and then of course the drugs you could buy different types of acid from i'm going to rattle off some stuff that half of you aren't even going to know like 2ci and 25c and uh, ethylone and dimethylone and like four floral amphetamine and all these random drugs that most people have never heard of ketamine, like random ass, and then regular LSD, of course. You could buy pot. Pot was actually really expensive on there, ironically. Um, I bet. I mean, I feel like was... to ship it, it's just more of a hassle than to buy it from anyone who's growing locally. Yeah, I mean, it was just everything was dirt cheap. Like you were buying this acid for, jeez oh, Louise, I think I was buying this uh, 2.5i, it was called. Uh, it was like, less than 25 cents per tab so if you needed a sheet of acid and a sheet is usually a hundred tabs you were paying what is that 25 dollars yeah two dollars yeah very so you cheap were paying 20 yeah like dirt cheap it was ridiculous but when it came to weed you're paying like three four hundred dollars for an ounce which even back then is kind of expensive 100 <laughs> percent. so we were selling uh, basically, like I said, you have to go and input some money in the in the forefront to uh, make sure that you're a verified and you open a marketplace and people it's, think of it like eBay. You have reviews, you have customer reviews, people come and purchase things out of your store and you have to ship them. Now, this is the tricky part because you have drug sniffing dogs, you have scanners, you have lots of law enforcement opportunity to go and intercept your products. And some things are going internationally, some things are going uh, interstate, intercountry. So like one of the main things that we would do is we would import something from out of the country and sell it within the United States because it could sell for a premium. 
Uh, reason being, it's much harder to get something through customs. However, they don't check it as much if it's going cross state within country lines. Uh, so we would order it, we would repackage it. Uh, typically, things would come in. I had uh, I had some ecstasy come inside of uh, DVD cases one time. Uh, it was mylar bagged, and for those unfamiliar with mylar, it's kind of like a metallic. Uh, it's like unscannable. It's often used in hydroponics for weed. Um, it's just kind of like a. Uh, it's used with electronics too when they're shipping to try and prevent UV rays from damaging the items and stuff like that. So it's like a protective metallic looking coating that's like a bag and you put the stuff in there and it seals up and then you got to find clever ways to hide it. So I'm um, trying to think of some ways that we used to. One for the acid, we would go and we would mylar bag it in. It was a white on the outside and it was like square. And so we would go and we would stick it in an envelope and we would make sure that it has like divots in the paper to make sure the paper doesn't move around in the envelope. Because if you have things that shake or move, that makes it suspicious. So you go and you have to make sure it's static. Uh, and then we would print fake, uh, like fake ads or something. So one thing was uh, we had this little Mylar bag that looked like it could be about the size of, uh, of a picture. And we said that we were a picture company and we were sending you your negatives or something like that. And so we would stick three or four sheets of paper in there. A couple of them had logos. A couple of them had some fake written letters and stuff from the company. And once you unfolded everything, if you opened up the bag, voila, you take some acid out. And so there were lots of like little clever ways and tricks that people have to go and ship stuff um, in order to get to assassination. Whether it gets there or not depends on how good the, uh, the seller is. And sometimes you could get refunded and sometimes you might not. Depends on your relationship and stuff. Yeah, I got I got some buddies who uh, ship some stuff around the country right now, actually, and they say the biggest headache for them is just getting product to people. You know, the cops, the post office—they're always looking. I don't know if the post office does it. Cause he says he does a lot through UPS, but they're always trying to kind of get into your packages, make sure you're not doing anything sketchy. He's actually—he was. I don't know if he's still in this game at all, but he was you know, sending people out to different locations. He'd drive all across town to drop off a couple at one place, drive, you know, an hour north, drop another one off, yada, yada, yada. And it's just a constant game of cat and mouse is what he says. And then on the other just side like of people, that. One of the things people do is they, they ship to drop locations. So not to confuse with drop shipping, but you would ship to a drop location, which is just like maybe an abandoned house or something. That way you go and you ship the package here and you know nobody lives there, so nobody's going to get in trouble if the cops come when the package is delivered. But at the same time, you kind of have to watch the house in case somebody else is watching the house. Yeah. So if you want to go pick up your package, you got to make sure you're not being watched. Yeah, it's a very much a game of cat and mouse. Uh, and then I was just going to say on the other end of that, we've had some packages show up that are you know, in the most random things. Like we'll get a little little vial of something or couple things in a, like a jacket pocket all wrapped up nice in a little shitty jacket pocket or in books or whatever they're sending you know it's just always something new but um so really quick you know w w was this ever something that you worried about you know getting caught uh someone finding out that you're shipping them people figuring out who you are where you live that sort of thing was that ever a worry to you so i kind of was a runner man a lot of the time 
And I didn't really worry about anything because the way it was explained to me, and I was probably, I would say, a little naive, where the way it was explained is, if you sell drugs in person, you have somebody who knows who you are. If you sell drugs in person, the cops can watch you. If we're selling drugs online, we're using this <laughs> magical thing called Tor, and it hides your IP address, it hides your identity, and you're selling to people you don't know and they don't know who you are. So it's like the perfect plan. Um, now, what comes to find out is, well, you got customs still, you still got cops who catch your packages, and you still got people who figure out and watch you. I remember there was one story where a guy used to go and he would buy his postage at the post office and he was shipping, I want to say, uh, some sort of opioid, maybe oxycodone or something. And he would go and he would go to the same post office and he would go and buy stamps out of the machine. Now, what he didn't realize is this stamp machine uh, had a camera on it. <laughs> and not only did the stamp machine have a camera on it, but these stamps have like serial numbers on them. So he was sent, maybe sending to a cop and cops will do this. They'll go and they'll go and order on the Silk Road and they'll wait for the package to get there and they'll look for identifying markings and stuff. Because what some people don't realize too is uh, a lot of the laser printers these days, when they print, they print special hidden like identifications onto the paper. So if you're using your laser printer to print any kind of information for your shipment, if you're printing out your label off of the printer or whatever, a cop gets your package and they can go and find the serial number and they can go and track down who sold you what and go and find your location. So this guy gets caught dead in pants down in the post office because he was going and he was buying some more, uh, some more stamps for himself. So yeah, you hear about the stories pretty often, but was it ever something that you worried about or were you kind of just nonchalant about it? You think, Oh yeah, you know, it's all hidden. I'm doing this right. I was super, I was super nonchalant. And okay. that's, that's what was, that was what my downfall was. Yeah. I was, so I, I, I was nonchalant about, so I'll, pr I'll say one more thing before it was funny, because like I said earlier, there were different markets. There were, there was one that was called black market reloaded. There was one that was called Abraxas. There was one that was called alpha Bay. Um, there was one that was called sheep market. Now sheep market is really funny to me because my partner got on sheep market at my behest. I was not happy with it. Um, and I told him because just, just the name, like I was like, dude, it's called sheep market. They're totally like calling all the users sheep. And this was something common in, uh, in, in the days of the Silk Road and stuff is you had lots of scammers. People would go and they would make accounts and they would, they would go and run a couple of, of packages. It would make a, they would make good info and they would get their ratings up and then they would just go and scam everybody all of a sudden. Um, or sometimes fake uh, marketplaces would open. And so they would open the marketplace and they would let everybody deposit their Bitcoin and start buying and selling. And then after a little bit of time, they would shut down the marketplace and empty the wallets. And so that's exactly what happened with sheep market is it became very popular, very fast. And I believe it was after Silk Road went down. Um, for those who don't know, there were two Silk Roads. So I don't remember if it was after the first or the second, but he went and he was using sheep market and uh, he didn't take his money off. And this was a problem because this had happened either before or after. And I'll get to my explanation of what. And so sheep market goes down and they take all of our money off of it. Now this happened one other time and this was when Silk Road 1 got taken down. So we had our account, which as you might see our name or my name, it was, uh, we were the Indigo child. 
And so we were typically selling different types of acid and molly and ecstasy and stuff of that nature. And uh, we had accumulated about 100 Bitcoin, uh, which back then was worth about $12,000. And so one day I wake up and it was really ironic, actually, because I had a buddy from high school who knew that I sold. And I get a picture in my in my uh, my text messages of uh, a screenshot from Twitter, and it was one of the uh, dark market watches, one of those Twitter accounts that watches the dark net. And uh, it was like Silk Road gets taken down, and Ross Ulbricht is arrested, or something like that. And I was like in shock. And yeah, my <laughs> like I got a ton of Bitcoin on there. <laughs> my partner didn't empty our Bitcoin wallet. So we got 110 Bitcoin confiscated by the FBI. So that was fun. real fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We lost $12,000 and months and months and months worth of work. And that was, uh, that was wonderful. Oh, I bet that was a huge pain in the ass. I feel like so many people have lost money on the Silk Road. Uh, <laughs> one from it going down, but two from just scammers out there. And you talked about these scammers already. Uh, really quick, because I do want to get into your actual story. I do want to talk about it. I do want to talk about Ross. Before we get into all that, uh, what was the process like for cashing out your Bitcoin? Were you just simply cashing out, going back to cash? What what was it like running a market um, or kind of being a vendor on the Silk Road? So one of the one of the things that you had to do um, is we understood that Bitcoin wasn't anonymous, so we had to use coin mixers, uh, which actually sometimes were scams too. And so for those unfamiliar, so many coin scams. Mixer is, yeah, it's insane. Crypto has just been like a giant scam right? from the start. Who can, scam, who can scam each other the best, to be honest? Oh my gosh, it's like it's still going on. scamming. It's ridiculous. I mean, you still got people who fall for on Twitter, Elon Musk, uh, send me three Ethereum and I'll send you 100 back. Right. Like, I, I just saw one recently. It was maybe a month or two ago. Some kid was freaking out about it. Oh, yeah. He was like, oh, I thought Elon Musk it was blah, blah, blah. Yeah. How do I reverse my transaction? And it's like, how are you in crypto and you don't realize that you can't reverse your transaction? Like, I just can't even fathom. The thing is, the, the scams will continue. And I think until this is a fully developed market, very mature, they will continue to happen. And even then, I see them continuing to happen. Uh, but oh, these... I mean, you have people who call old people and say they're their grandson locked up in right. and to send them money. Yeah. So it's going to keep going on. It will continue to happen. You're right. There will just be new and updated scams that we see along the way. But anyways, going, going back to you being a vendor, getting paid, getting that money actually out and into your pockets. So, yeah, we would use coin mixers. We would have to go and and mainly I was using local Bitcoin. Uh, localbitcoin.com i was purchasing bitcoin off of other people and that way it was more anonymous i could go and i i could go and drop some money at a moneygram at walmart or i could do green dot cards and i would go and we would go and make this transaction happen they would deposit the bitcoin into my into my wallet address and with local bitcoin you also have people who are trustworthy vendors that you know that you can buy and sell from uh there are people who would try and sell through paypal sometimes but paypal just like today was scammy back then uh, because PayPal doesn't approve of selling of Bitcoin. So people would go and back transfer transactions and say they didn't get their products. And so we had issues with that. Um, and so cashing out, it wasn't, wasn't a ton of cashing out. Unfortunately, it was mainly stacking and reinvesting. 
it was much easier just to leave the Bitcoin on Silk Road and then go and use it to purchase some more product from another vendor. And that was mainly what it was. It was rinse and repeat. We weren't buying anything on the street and selling it on the Silk Road. It was, it was all kind of like cyclical. It was purchase something from one place and ship it to another. You were drop shipping drugs. I mean, we weren't drop shipping. We were repackaging. <laughs> no, but... no, I know, I know. I'm, I'm only kidding. Um, yeah, you're fine. But okay, so you were just leaving it on there, pretty much reinvesting, and then mm-hmm. shit hit the fan, and you lost. Was was twelve grand pretty much the bulk of what you had made while selling on Silk Road, or was? Yeah, that was all of it. Okay, <laughs> that was that was all of it. As far as I I called my buddy up. So like I said, I got this text message in my uh, in my DMs and my friend actually said, you can't even hide on the internet or something like that. Even drug dealers can't hide on the internet. <laughs> and I was I was like, you're a fucking prick. Uh, excuse my language if I can't say that. No, you're fine. You can, but... you can say whatever you please. But okay, so I, I am very sorry to hear this. It is very unfortunate that a lot of people lost a lot of money. You guys had kind of reinvested. We're growing this business. A lot of people are going to hate that I call this a business. Uh, they're going to think, oh, he's selling drugs. He's a terrible person, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but it was his business that you were running. And eventually it came to an end. 12 grand was lost. Um, we had talked previously about what had happened to you and to Ross. So do, do you want to get into kind of your story first? Uh, was this after Silk Road went down? How did this all happen? So Silk Road went down and we were trying to find alternatives. Uh, like I said, there were other marketplaces, some prior, some some after. Um, after Silk Road went down, there was Silk Road 2. There was um, one that was called Agora Market, A-G-O-R-A. There was one that was called Abraxas. So we basically tried opening new shops in, in new marketplaces. Uh, we even opened a marketplace uh, and tried to drop ship drugs in order to try and accumulate enough money to actually start selling in the capacity that we're, we were before. So um, I had actually had a small falling out with my partner uh, where we had separated for a little bit and he started trying to engage me and try to start things up again. And so he would send me to pick up packages occasionally. So I had opened a PO box and we would send stuff. Uh, I had ordered uh, we had ordered some oil, some hash oil. We had gotten some ecstasy pills um, and like stuff like that. I had ordered it to my house at one point. I had ordered it to my P.O. box. So <clears throat> one day uh, he says, hey, uh, I ordered uh, a thousand ecstasy pills. And uh, he said, I got 200 grams of alprazolam powder. Uh, for those of you who don't know what alprazolam is, it's the active ingredient in Xanax. Uh, so 200 grams of alprazolam powder is equal to 100,000 two milligram bar Xanax pills. Uh, the plan was to press them ourselves and make Xanax bars. Uh, so this so, is a big order. Oh, it was cheap, but yeah. I mean, the resale value was upwards of a quarter million dollars. Yeah, the yeah. Street, value, street level if you were selling them individually. Dime a dozen, yeah. Uh, I think we purchased the entire batch for... Somewhere around six or eight thousand dollars, maybe ten. Very cheap. Yeah, it was dirt cheap. I yeah. mean, we got the Xanax came from China and the ecstasy came from Belgium. Um, so is that ever so a concern the, of yours that you know maybe this might not be a hundred percent legit product? Was that ever something you guys worried about? The legit productness wasn't so much the getting scammed more of was because we had ordered before 
where, like I said, sometimes vendors would make a good, make a clean account and exit scam. That's what we would call it is exit scam. Um, no, I'm not talking about we, like you getting, I guess, bunk product. I'm talking about like you selling it after the fact to like, cause I know now a lot of press pills have got a lot of shit in them. Uh, people aren't getting the right drugs that they want. Was that ever a concern that you were going to, I, I'm assuming you tested everything, but were you guys ever worried that, Oh, Hey, you know, we're getting this shitty product out to people, um, and could be, you know, hurting some people. Oh, so you're saying reselling bad product. Yes. Um, no, cause we always, we always verified our purchases. Okay. I mean, there we go. We would, we would make, we would make relationships with the vendors. We would purchase from the same people often. So, and there, there are like, those of you like who know a little bit about cryptography, we could exchange private keys and stuff. So even if a marketplace went down, we could go and we could find somebody on a new marketplace and verify ourselves through our private keys. Um, so sometimes we had built relationships that we were able to uphold and sometimes we had to go and build new ones. Uh, so when it came to the ecstasy, I think we did a test order. I think this was a test order actually. And this is kind of what went wrong. Uh, the Xanax, I believe we had ordered before. It was coming straight from China. It was 99.9 pure, pure 200 grams of Alpazolin powder. There we came go. with tracking, um, came with tracking. And so we ordered both of them at the same time. And uh, this is the story. He sends me out. He says, uh, I, I ordered both of these. Um, we're waiting for them. And tracking says that the Xanax is right. So I go, I go to the post office. I had lost my P.O. box key. So I have to go to the counter oh, and God. ask them to open my box. <laughs> I have to go to the counter and <laughs> oh, ask God. them to open my box for me. So, so you're they sweating go to my bullets box. at this point. <laughs> they, they go to my box and they say there's nothing in there. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And so I text my buddy and I say, well, it's not here yet. And he goes, no, tracking says it's there. And I go, well, I just asked the person at the counter and they said it's not there, so it's not there. I'll deal with it tomorrow. So I went and I did whatever the hell I was doing that day. And so I come back the next day. I come back the next day and I'm waiting in line and I go and I go up to the counter. And as I'm about to go up to the counter, actually my father's girlfriend is in the post office. Uh, so we stand there and we chat for a bit and, uh, cause she, she owns her own company. And so she was shipping out of that post office constantly. So we chat and I get up to the counter and I buy myself a new PO box key and, uh, they give me my packages. And so they give them to me. I sign for them. I'm chatting with her some more and I end up with two and I'm like, wow, two packages. Both of them came in. Wow. That's awesome. And so obviously I know what's in there, but like, I'm not going to let anybody know. Like I try not to make too much of an outward statement, but it's like, wow, I'm, I'm walking out this post office with a quarter million dollars in my hand basically. And so I'm chatting it up with her and we walk outside and almost as soon as the door closes behind us, at least six or eight police officers just rush us. Jeez. And so they grab her, they grab me, they separate us. They start questioning us. Somebody grabs the packages out of my hand. Somebody else puts my hands behind my back. And I was, I was scared to I say bet. the least. I was surprised. I was. You probably was caught probably off guard. Most... You expected to just get this package, and as you're walking out, you're rushed up on. A hundred percent. I mean, I've picked up packages before with no problem, and to my understanding, it was a foolproof method. Now, if I had gotten caught in my car, I feel like things might have been a little different. But 
the fact that I got caught at the post office kind of bugged me out a little bit. Uh, for those who don't know, cops aren't allowed to open your packages without a warrant unless they have your permission. So if you ever want to carry something around with you, the quote unquote like trick of the trade is to stick something in an envelope, put an address on it and put a stamp because that makes it legitimate mail. And then if you get pulled over, the police officer cannot open it without a warrant. So I knew these and I figured if I had gotten pulled over, I knew that the cops couldn't do anything to me. I could stick it in the trunk of my car. They need search warrants and whatever, whatever. But being caught red-handed and then being basically dragged back into the post office, which was strange. They didn't take me down to the station or anything immediately. They pulled me back in the post office into a back room and they questioned me back there. Very odd. I don't really know what goes on at the standard post office. If they have like a little place that they can do that back there, if that's a pretty common thing or if they were just making do because of the circumstances. Um, but okay, so they grab you, they pull you back there. Your your mind has to be racing at this point. What do they ask? Can you talk about this kind of stuff? Can you talk about you know what they were asking, uh, what happened? I mean, they were asking if it's mine. They were asking me what's in the package. They were asking me who I was working for, who I was working with, uh, all of these types of questions. And I, I tried to deny it. I tried to deflect. I I even tried to like uh, I tried to blame other people, which I'm not super proud of. Um, but I mean, when you're in a situation like that, you kind of just fend for yourself. Um, so it doesn't really go how I'd like it to They end up taking me to jail. Um, and they they assure me because I worked with them and whatever that I was honest, I end up just taking the blame for it because I don't want my buddy to get in trouble. And so I'm just like, yeah, I did the whole thing like this, that, the other. And so they open up the packages, um, and they go and they take me in. Uh, I end up with a $250,000 bill for the ecstasy and a $1,000 bill for the Zadex, which is really funny. Very And odd. it's always funny. It's always funny looking back because I think they just really didn't understand how much Xanax I got caught with. Right. Also, prescription pills, for some reason, they're probably like, oh, we can be more lenient on this. The ecstasy is very clearly illegal. So let's give them as high a bail for that as possible. Yeah, so I go in, they gave me, it's a first degree felony for 200 to 400 grams of MDMA. And so I'm waiting and there's a thing when you go to jail where they have to file charges on you within a certain amount of time. Um, if they do not file the charges, they are automatically dropped. So you have a 33 day waiting period basically with a 10 day extension, they say. So you're sitting there checking your, your forms and checking they have like an electronic kiosk that you can check. You're checking that shit on the daily. You're seeing if there's a new order code, if you have a, if you have a charge code that comes up or if it's blank. So every day there's not a charge code. You're thinking, you're praying that it's going to keep that way so that they drop the charges. So they'll wait until the last minute just to fuck with you. So the very last day they file charges on me and they actually raise the charges. Um, I got caught with a thousand pills, but in my state, they don't charge you based on the amount of drugs that you're arrested with. They charge you with the aggregate weight of the entire substance. So let's say that you're arrested with uh, oxycodone, for example. You get an oxy, it's 20 milligram oxy. The entire pill weighs about half a gram. So about 
what is that 20 times more than uh than just the active substance in it so if i get caught with 10 oxys that's almost that's five grams and five grams is trafficking three to five years in prison when really if 20 oxys is 400 is half a gram of actual oxycodone so while i got arrested with a thousand ecstasy pills uh it weighed 402 grams i think something like where it was just on the cusp and so they gave me the higher charge where if they had weighed the actual substance that was inside of the pill i would have gotten a uh a 200 grams or less which is a second degree felony instead of a first degree felony uh so those unfamiliar with drug charges is they usually carry mandatory minimum sentences uh mandatory minimum means that the judge is required to sentence you to a certain amount of time no matter what uh it doesn't matter if it's your first offense it doesn't matter if you're a cop if you're a police uh, if you're a, if you're a military man if you're a father if you're like let's say you're arrested with pot in a school zone pot in a school zone means three years doesn't matter so these are some scary things and so i'm caught with a first degree felony and uh, my mandatory minimum is 15 years so you're shitting bricks at this point yeah i mean and i didn't realize at first i'm sitting there my parents hire me an attorney uh gracious enough to go and help me out and so i'm sitting there i'm thinking um they're gonna post bail i'm gonna get out this that and the other i end up in a cell with some people and one of the cellmates I have, it's a six-man cell. So there's six of us in there. Oh, that was fun, especially when somebody had to take a shit. God damn. <laughs> um, so we would, we would do our own law work. You could order what's called law library. And so every week you would get a form and you would be able to write down four case laws that you wanted to read. And you would send it in. And the next week, the case laws would come back and you could read them. And they would have other case laws in them as references, and you could go and order more and more and research and try to build up a case for yourself in order to go to the judge and try and do whatever it is. Because there's always loopholes. Um, like I said, a cop isn't allowed to open your package. So if the cop did open your package without a warrant or without your permission, then you can go and find the case law that says, oh, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, this is incorrect, and they have to, they have to shut down the case. So... I get uh, I get a penal code packet, and it explains the sentencing guidelines. And so I start adding up my sentencing guidelines, and I realize, and I'm facing some actual time here. Like I thought that it was just like, oh, like I got I got caught with some drugs, you know. Like as an entrepreneur like that, and as somebody who sees drugs as something innocent, because to me, and I'm sure to a lot of people, drugs are a product, just like you go into the store and buying alcohol. Somebody is purchasing them, they are an adult, and they're making a willing full purchase. It's not like a crime, like robbing somebody, where I am taking something who that belongs to another person. We are entering into a mutual transaction, and this person is, is like cognizant of whatever the results and the expectations of the deal are. So I'm, I've never had any issue with drugs in general, and so I've just never viewed them in the same way. And to come and find out that it's as serious was – scary <laughs> i bet yeah a little bit shocking to say the least kind of lean more on your side i do understand the kind of weight of what they are in our society but i kind of do lean towards kind of your similar mindset uh but so you're in you're just in jail at this point right you're you're still waiting on on some stuff to happen Correct. 
So those who don't know the difference between jail and prison, jail is where you wait to get sentenced. Uh, if you have not gone to trial, you are in jail. If you are sentenced to less than a year, you are also in jail. In jail. So correct, or county jail usually. Um, now, if you are sentenced to over a year, they call it a 366 maybe because it's one day over a year. Uh, so you get a 366, you go to prison. Um, anything higher is prison. So, oh, yeah. I mean, but even even in jail, you have people who are waiting two, three, four, five years just to get sentenced. Yeah. I met somebody, I met somebody who had, uh, I mean, I met a couple of people who had bodies. That was bodies as in they had murder charges. Um, and that was quite interesting. One person had claimed to be the Craigslist killer and he had been waiting for five years when I met him. Um, and he's on death row now. So that's uh, that's a lot of fun. There's probably some very but, interesting characters in there. Uh, but, okay, so going back to it, you're kind of waiting for your sentencing. You're doing your research. Uh, the time actually comes. We're, we're talking now. You know, it hasn't been 15 years. So I'm assuming that you got some stuff reduced. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? So there are special sentencing guidelines for certain age groups. Uh, for psychology reasons, your frontal lobe, which is has to do with your decision-making processes, is not fully developed until about the age of 23. That's one of the reasons that they say you can't drink until you're 21. They want to make sure that you are mature enough to make uh, responsible decisions for yourself. So they have created special sentencing guidelines uh, that allow leniency on those who are sentenced under the age of 21. So I was able to opt into that by taking a plea. Now, it's funny because when you take a plea or when you're first spoken to about a plea, it seems like a sure thing sometimes. You're told, yeah, uh, there's this thing we're going after. Uh, this is what it's called. I'm not going to name it because it might give away where I'm located. Um, so there's a special sentencing guideline, and it prevents them from sentencing you over this maximum amount of time. Um, and so we're going to go in front of the judge, and we're expecting you to get about this much, is what my lawyer told me. So I believe that I was told I was going to get a year in jail, uh, a year on house arrest, and four years of probation. Um, but when you go in the courtroom, if you're making a plea, you're pleading guilty. So you are open pleading to the judge. You are saying, judge, I am guilty. Please take mercy on me. Now, the judge does not have to take mercy on you. You have just admitted your guilt, and now you are at the mercy of the court to basically do whatever the fuck they want. So when I realized that, the judge is reading out all of the mandatory like statements that he has to say when the when the court uh, when the court day begins and I'm given a packet that I have to sign and so I sign this packet and I'm reading through it and it's like you are not uh, you are not guaranteed this and you are not guaranteed that and it's like wait what the fuck like I thought <laughs> I just I said I was guilty I was getting, to get this yeah I thought that I was getting a deal what do you mean that I don't have to get the deal and so. You sit there and, and they go and they have, uh, you'll have your own witnesses come up. So I had a psychologist come and speak for me. Uh, my parents spoke for me. I had many people who I know throughout my life write letters to the judge explaining their uh, relationships and their capacities and the reason that they feel certain ways. And like, 
my sister wrote a letter and my sister's letter is really interesting because she said that I deserve to get punished. Huh. And huh. she was like, there is no question that my brother deserves to get punished, but yada, 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 he's still a great kid. He's my rock in my hard place. So she, she hit both angles and I, I have a lot of respect for her for doing it. So she, she did, she did quality. There we go. So you have all these people writing letters for you. You're kind of waiting for the judge to tell you, okay, this is what you're actually being charged with. At the end of the day, what did it boil down to? So I actually had a violation of probation in a different county at the same time that I had gotten this charge. So oh, it was good. like a double whammy. Good, good, yeah, good. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. So I got sentenced in the one court to a year, a year house arrest and four years of probation. And then so you got I, got what you were shooting for. Yes, but I did not get uh, time served. Now, what that means is the time that I sat previously waiting for my sentence did not count towards my sentence. There we go. And how long was that? Uh, I think I sat for six months before being. Oh sentenced. wow. Okay. So so a good amount of time. But still, you're yeah, so. at the end of the day, you're sitting there saying, "Okay, I'm going to spend a year in jail," and. Uh, it could be much worse. So you're, you're probably pretty stoked on all this still. Yeah. I mean, uh, my minimum was 15 and my maximum was 35. Yeah. So I you're, don't you, think you I got have a year. room to complain. You got a year <laughs> and six months technically. So I ended up getting, I had to get transferred to the other county. And when I went to the other county, they gave me nine months for my violation of probation. There we go. Um, so I ended up serving 22 or 23 months in totality I came home. I did nine months on probate on uh, on house arrest, and uh, I have since been serving probation. There we go. And uh, I'm assuming you are a changed man, not breaking the law anymore. You've realized what a uh, what shitty stuff can come from it. I guess I don't I don't know how to put that eloquently. I don't sell drugs anymore. Um, I definitely do drugs. There I we definitely go. have. Uh, not change my opinion on drugs. Okay, I've so changed some of my other opinions on different things from my experiences, and I do think that I've come out a better man. Uh, it was a shitty time, but at the same time, I grew a lot. Yeah. I, there was a time where I read a book a day, almost. I think I read, jeez uh, Louise, I think I literally read like 70 to 100 books while I was there, and I didn't read books for the first six months I was there, so... Jesus Christ. Okay. So did a lot of learning, did a lot of growing up. Uh, this, this circles back on one of the topics that I did want to talk about. Uh, and this is kind of the whole culture around drugs, the laws around drugs. Uh, because when Silk Road went down, they threw the book at Ross, you know, he is still in prison now. And I was curious cause you, you seem to have a similar mindset to myself where I, I think drugs are fine. Uh, I think that it, for the most part, they negatively affect the user. Uh, it does kind of seep out into, you know, the surrounding lives. Uh, but the same can be said about stuff like alcohol, nicotine. Uh, and so I, I think that personally, drugs aren't a terrible thing. I partake occasionally. Um, sounds like <laughs> oh, you still do as well. Uh, so do you think that what happened to Ross and this whole everything surrounding drugs in the eyes of the law uh, is wrong, is a problem, needs to be changed. What are your thoughts on all of it? So I'm going to preface with a quote that I love. Um, it's by Bill Hicks. He goes, you see, 
I think drugs have done some good things for us. I really do. And if you don't believe drugs have done some good things for us, do me a favor. Go home tonight. Take all your albums, all your tapes, all your CDs, and burn them. Because you know what? The, the musicians that made all that great music that's enhanced your lives throughout the years were real fucking high on drugs. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, my assumption is that you, you think that the laws are kind of bullshit. Need to be changed. Them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my one of my issues with Ross particularly is they sentenced him completely unfairly. He has no violent crimes, yet he has life in prison. He never sold drugs himself, but he has life in prison without possibility to parole, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and to my understanding, the reason they were able to sentence him to this is because in the evidence, they were able to inject um, this farce, essentially, that uh, he had hired a hitman to kill somebody who had threatened to release the identities of the users. Um, I'm not going to comment on my opinion on that, because just for practical purposes, um, but as far as that goes, they didn't even charge him with these crimes. So they sentenced him based on crimes that he was never even charged with, let alone convicted of. So that whole thing just stinks. Not to mention that a lot of the police officers, I believe there are multiple uh, detectives and, and investigators who were involved in this case who are now serving time in jail themselves for corruption. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of fishy shit going on. Uh, to put it not so Lightly. eloquently again, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a shame what has happened to him. I think they threw the book at him to really make an example. And, um, you know, you don't hear about these sites as often anymore. Uh, Silk Road is no. very known about, I mean, they're still out there. People are still selling drugs online. It still happens. I just feel like less people talk about it now because of what happened. Um, you know, there's petitions that I see going around. Uh, in your opinion, because you've kind of gone through this whole process, you've been in jail, you've gone through the sentencing. Uh, is there anything that we can do in the community to help Ross out in any way? Ross specifically, I'm not quite sure. I think laws need to be changed for that matter. Um, when it comes to us, it really is about educating people on drugs themselves and things. I mean, uh, I'm a big proponent. It's going to sound crazy to most people, but I think all drugs should be legalized. Um, and I have a lot of evidence to point to some positivities to it. Uh, the war on drugs was basically started by Rich Richard Nixon in the 1970s. Um, and it was used as a manner of control. Uh, he had an aide who actually said in an interview years later that they knew that it was specifically like the surrounding pot at first. And so there was a, a commission called the Nixon Commission, which came out and said, Nixon, pot isn't bad. It's not harmful and it's actually a medicine. And he said, oh, I don't care what you guys say. I'm gonna make it illegal and I'm gonna do this, that and the other. And his aide comes out years later and says, we knew that it didn't hurt people. We knew that it wasn't bad, but it allowed us to go and invade uh, black people's homes and then to invade uh, the hippies and to basically demonize these two these two cultures, and it gave us more opportunity to control and uh, help Nixon get the office again, and that was the entire plan. So, 
drugs have been used for ages. Uh, and the way drug culture is now, demonizing it doesn't help. If you tell your kid, don't touch the stove and don't explain to them why, what do you think they're going to do? They end up touching the stove. And I feel like a lot of people experimented with drugs at a young age simply because they were not allowed and it was the bad thing to do. Um, but I mean, I, I think as a society, we, we're kind of moving in a positive direction. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, there's the legalization of marijuana in most states. Uh, Decriminalization of magic mushrooms. Exactly. So I was going to say there's there's been uh, case studies done that show that, you know, ketamine is being used to treat depression. Depression. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so I think we're making positive steps or we're moving in the right direction. Uh, but do you think there's anything else that kind of can be done? Uh, I think education's probably the biggest one, which you had mentioned already. But, you know, you, you, we talked in DMs and privately. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost you for a second there. Oh, no worries. Uh, I said that we had talked yeah. private. Can you hear me now? Mm. Hello? Yo, can you hear me? Uh, looks like we're having Hello? some technical difficulties. Yo, can you hear me? Oh, I think I hear you now. There we go. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, internet was a little unstable on my end. Uh, but I was saying that, you know, education seems to be kind of the biggest factor in, you know, heading in the right direction. Uh, but we talked privately and you had talked about some work that you had done in college uh, surrounding, you know, kind of drug culture the positives, the benefits of legalizing drugs. Uh, is there anything else that you think we can do other than kind of educating the public? That's an interesting question. I don't I don't quite know because I think with most things, it really starts with getting people to actually understand. Like most people would think, oh, if we legalize drugs, like we're going to have more drug users. Uh, so I reference, I like to reference Portugal. Uh, Portugal, the country, decriminalized all drugs, I believe, in the 90s. Uh, since then, they've had over a 90% decrease in drug-related crime, and uh, they've had over a 50% decrease in uh, the spread of infectious diseases like HIV through sharing of needles, and they've had some exorbitant decrease in drug overdose deaths. Um, Switzerland has, uh, has observation injection rooms where they allow users to come and be overseen by doctors injecting their drugs and make sure that it's safe. And since those were implemented, they had over a 50% decrease in the spread of infectious disease and over a 50% decrease in uh, in the use of heroin and things like that. So just That one blows my making, mind. You can go have someone making, watch you take your drugs. Yeah. I mean, having these safe spaces is what works. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't demonize people. And that's the thing is, is, culture these days like if you don't like something you tend to demonize somebody and pushing them away creates a spiral effect uh, a lot of drug law and a lot of uh, drug understanding these days stems from this one study where basically they stuck a rat in a cage and they gave him heroin and they gave him i think water or something like that and he used the heroin over and over and over again and he died and this was a poor experiment because the only thing in the cage were him, the heroin, and the water. So he had nothing else. Now, this experiment was redone years later where it was uh, 
it was called uh, oh, I can't I can't remember what the study was called, but basically the rat was then put into a cage with other rats and a wheel to run on and some other stuff to do and water of course and drugs. And what was found out is that the rat really didn't use the drugs that much. It used the drugs, hung out with his friends, <laughs> ran on the on the wheel, did some drugs, drank some water, went on the wheel. And so what basically is shown is that if you don't separate these people and you don't demonize these people and you treat them like people, that they're far less likely to go into these spirals and they're far less likely to have these like severe addictive problems that are what creates most of the the problems in society. There we go. So it seems like the two biggest ones are really educating the public and then really, you know, moving away from demonizing these drugs. I remember my first story ever hearing about the drug acid was that someone took some and they thought they could fly and they jumped out the window or they took some and they thought their arm into a glass of orange juice. Yeah. They thought their arm was a snake and they cut it off. It's like, it's ridiculous conversations that we were having with children. Pretty much. I remember being very young in school uh, and this conversations were kind of being had with the, what was it? The dare program. Um, Oh man. You know, the don't do drugs program. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like that's the only way to kind of head in this positive direction. I, I personally don't see all drugs being decriminalized in the USA anytime soon, uh, but we can hope for that. And then kind of going back to Ross's situation, we can kind of hope that, you know, there's change made there and there's reform made there. Um, but okay, so we talked about kind of your journey as a vendor on the Silk Road. We talked about your sentencing, your opinions on drugs. We talked about Ross. Um, you know, I kind of want to, I always like to end with two things. One is, you know, what you're most excited for in the future. We kind of talked about the decriminalization of drugs and the demonization of drugs. Uh, so is there anything else that you're really looking forward to in, say, this next year or so? Looking forward to myself. Um, so I, at my university, I started, or I started a chapter of a club that's called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, so obviously I'm a big believer in these things. Uh, the ending the war on drugs is a, is a step forward for society. And um, so- So you're really, not all talking, I mean, you're, you're actually taking steps to kind of push the boundaries here and kind of fight back as much as possible. Oh no, like I, I don't understand how people just stand around and, and argue with each other on Facebook. Like if you want change, you need to go outside and affect real change. Uh, so I started this club Love I, to hear it, man. and it, it was, it was really interesting going around because people really just aren't educated. I would go up to students and, and a lot of students like, you know, there's a stigma. So uh, at first I was like, Hey, I'm starting this club about like drug edu- education. Are you, are you interested at all? And most people are like, eh, no, especially if they're like with their friends or they're uncomfortable. And so what I started doing is I started asking them leading questions and I would say, Hey, do you know what a mandatory minimum sentence is? And most people don't. And it's like, oh, well, you know, if you're caught with weed in the school zone, that you'll get three years in prison, even if you've never been caught and had any other crimes committed before. And it's like, what? Really? That doesn't sound fair. It's like, all right, uh, you know, uh, magic mushrooms. And they're like, oh, yeah, the hippie drug. And it's like, well, you realize that uh, you have you ever heard of Chantix? And they're like, some people have, some people haven't. Chantix is an anti-smoking drug. So Johns Hopkins University 
did a medical study with magic mushrooms, and what they found is that 80% of the participants had had a, a cessation from smoking after six months of their of a one-time dose of magic mushrooms. Now, using Chantix, only 35% in the same amount of time. And then, like you said earlier, ketamine. Ketamine is considered to be one of the antidepressant drugs of our generation. Like, there's all these things that people don't know and don't understand, and they're stigmatized in such a way that when you go and you show them this information, they're really surprised and they become interested in some way. And it's funny because I had a professor who she let me speak to her class and she didn't know this information either. And at one point she, she even, she was like, I didn't even know alcohol was a drug. I thought drugs <laughs> were one thing and alcohol was another. And I'm like, no, al- alcohol is definitely a drug. Right. And like, she's like, I want to join your club just so I can learn. And I was yeah. like, well, that's really cool. Like, look at that. It's usually harder with the older generation. So big props to you there. So well, you've you've got this know. club. It's just, it's just, it's just uh, what what do you call it? Um, you just don't stop. It's just about having tenacity. There we go. So you've got this club. You're kind of making pushes. Uh, you're kind of trying to educate people on your campus. You're coming on this podcast. We're talking about it now. We're getting it out to the people. Hopefully, this can instill some change in people's lives because I feel like a lot of people in this industry know a little bit about the Silk Road, know a little bit about drugs, they're a little bit more open to hearing other opinions on it. Uh, So hopefully this can kind of change some of their minds, uh, at least a little bit, or at least point them in the right direction. Um, So, usually like to end with a biggest tip, and I kind of want to circle back because this is the Crypto Entrepreneurs Podcast, I kind of want to circle back on you being a vendor online, you accepting crypto, or Bitcoin payments, uh, because I think from then to now, we have had a lot more people become open to the idea of accepting Bitcoin and accepting other cryptocurrencies at their place of business. Uh, so do you have any tips or, I guess, suggestions for these people, for these entrepreneurs who are starting their businesses or running their businesses who want to implement a cryptocurrency payment into their business model? I don't necessarily know about implementing the cryptocurrency because that's something difficult because it's just, it's not necessarily at that level yet where everybody uses it. Having the availability is really nice and it's really nice for even just the simple fact that people can't back transfer on you, um, which is like one of the really main parts for somebody who's selling any type of good. If I'm selling something on eBay, the person can say, hey, I didn't get it. PayPal, I didn't get it. And it's like tracking says you got it. And yeah. PayPal still say, I don't care, and give them their money back. <laughs> so you're out money and a product. So if you say, if you've built like this relationship of trust, I mean, that's that's something too, is you need to build your business on good standing. You need to make sure that you have good reviews, you have customers who come back, and that you can go and you can have this uh, the stature for yourself that so that people trust you. Um, I had a friend actually recommend to me when I first started selling stuff and he said, use your real identity. And I was like, well, that's surprising. I thought I should like make a business name or make some sort of an, like be anonymous somehow. Or he was like, no, show your face. That way people trust you more because when people know who you are and they can go back and look you up, then they kind of have more of a feeling of trust than just like an empty computer screen. Um, so add crypto, like take beep. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, 
I would have just gone and called out my favorite crypto to buy. But uh, <laughs> as far as as implementing it into your business, that's a really tricky question. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, back in the day when you were doing it, it was more out of necessity than anything. I was kind exactly. of the only way to do things. There are, you know, so many other options, especially with everything, you know, done by the books. If, you're, if you've got a legal business up and running, uh, it's hard to justify making that move to accepting crypto when there are so many other options. Uh, but I think we are making steps in the right direction. You know, I run a discord. I charge people for it. You probably seen me talking about it on Twitter um, and people Seems asked to be quite popular. Yeah. Yeah. So, pe- so people have asked and, um, you know, it's just hard for me to turn them down and say, no, we don't accept crypto at the moment. It's just easier to take credit card or some sort of prepaid debit card. Uh, but I think, you know, in the future, we are going to implement that sort of thing to open up the idea that, you know, this can be completely trustless. We don't need to have this third party. It can be you sending crypto to us us providing a good or service for a you service to you exactly mm-hmm. um so all right, all right man uh kind of got away from the main point just your kind of stories your recollections of selling drugs online it's it's good to talk to somebody who was on the selling side of it because i've done so many interviews where they've said you know my first experience with bitcoin was buying something on the silk road uh, and never had I talked to anybody who was a seller. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's definitely opened up my mind a little bit. Uh, I hope it's done so for my audience as well. Before we go, is there anything else that you want my audience to know or you think that we missed during this conversation? Um, that I want them to know or that I think they miss. Not necessarily. I mean, I want them to think for themselves more than anything else. Don't listen to what the media tells you about this, that, and the other. I mean, JP Morgan said, Bitcoin is this, that, and the other, and now they're trying to invest in it or buy it or mine it or whatever the hell. Like, If somebody in a big position tells you not to do something, they're probably doing it behind your back and they're trying to do it in full force because they realize you'll find out eventually. So make sure to go and find stuff out for yourself. Make sure to go and figure out whatever your opinion is. It doesn't necessarily matter if other people agree with you. If you find enough evidence and you find enough of a reason to believe in something, then that should really be enough if you can back it up. Now, if you can't back it up and if you're just all talk, that's something else. But that's 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 all I have to say. No, yeah, I love it. I mean, the kind of mantra of the industry is do your own research, or at least one of the mantras of the industry is do your own research. So I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, and just to go off what you were saying, you know, if someone on the other side of the argument says, hey, these are the reasons that I do not like drugs. There's this, that, and this study, and I've formed an opinion on it. I'm a-okay with that. And those people, you know, I think are allowed to be out there, are allowed to do their thing. And I'm not going to argue with them because they've gone and done their research. But for someone to just say, you know, I I think drugs should be illegal because the government told me drugs should be illegal and somebody died because they took this drug. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. And that's where kind of... We I think can... we should always remember that the government sold drugs first. <laughs> You're not wrong. Okay, there we go. I, I think that's a perfect way to end it. You know, do your own research. I feel like it gets tossed around a lot and people have kind of lost the true meaning of it. Uh, but I think we really need to get back to that with all this quote unquote fake news in the media 
everyone's trying to push their narrative. I think everyone needs to just take a quick step back and kind of think for themselves again. So thank you so much for coming on. This was such a pleasure talking to you again, you know, talking to someone who was on the selling side of things. It's been a very interesting talk. So thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.